So we've been going through a series called Old Like Logic. And tonight we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. If you like taking notes, I've titled this message, Learning to Tell Time. Learning to Tell Time. And tonight, I would like to start off by asking you a question. What would it look like if you were one of those guys that had everything that everybody else wants? What would it be like to be one of those people? The type of person that always scores the goals, maybe the person who gets straight A's on every test, the person that everyone else wants to be. It's like they go to Dunkin' Donuts and they just happen to be the millionth customer and they get free Dunkin' Donuts for all of their life, you know, the rest of their life. You envy that person. And we all know what it's like to see somebody and you're like, they have everything handed to them. They're rich, they're smart, they're good looking. They're kind of like Kenneth Bone with the sweater. I'm just kidding. If you don't know who that is, don't worry about it. But you kind of look at these people in envy, okay? They have everything that everybody else wants. Well, actually, there is a guy named King Solomon, way back when he was a third king of Israel. We learned about him last week, and tonight we're reading another book that he wrote called Ecclesiastes. And King Solomon, as we learned last week, had everything that everybody else wanted. He was smart, he was rich. Not only did he have wealth, but people from all over the world were coming to hear his wisdom. That's who this guy, King Solomon, was. So he had everything that you and I, on a purely materialistic level, would want. And yet this is what he had to say, pay attention. He says in Ecclesiastes chapter one, verse 14, he says, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed, all is vanity and grasping for the wind. He says that word vanity, and that word vanity means breath. It has a form, but not a lot of substance. In other words, he says, I've seen everything there is to see, I've obtained everything there is to obtain, and a life under the sun without God is meaningless. Let me give you some examples of what he says in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you have the time to read it, you really should. He says, you know, at, at some point, I thought that the right thing to do, the smarter thing to do, is to pursue wisdom in this life. Kind of like a person who walks in the light versus the dark will be able to see things and he'll get an advantage in life versus a fool that doesn't know wisdom, doesn't know anything, who stumbles in the dark. But then he realized a problem. That whether you're smart or you're stupid, both of them die and neither of them will be remembered. So what's the value of wisdom? And then he said, well, I, I want to pursue wealth. And he did. But then here was the problem. Because you start off and you see that rich kid that has everything that anyone could ever want. It just kind of handed to them. They're spoiled. And you despise that kid. And you say, well, I'm going to work my tail off. I'm going to obtain all the riches myself. Work by my sweat. Work by my blood. I'm going to obtain everything that I want myself. Here's a problem. One day you're gonna die and you're gonna leave it to your kids who are gonna be the same type of kids that you hated in the first place. It's all meaningless. It's all ridiculous. He says it's like grasping for the wind. There's really no substance to it anyway. Moreover, the more riches you have, the more people you need to hire to spend your money for you and the less people you trust because you always wonder, are they just in it for the money? So wealth, he says, is meaningless. So not only wisdom is meaningless, he says wealth is meaningless. And then success is random. This is what he says about success in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 11. He says, I have observed something else under the sun. The fastest runner doesn't always win the race, and the strongest warrior doesn't always win the battle. The wise sometimes go hungry, and the skillful are not necessarily wealthy. And those who are educated don't always lead successful lives. It is all decided by chance by being in the right place at the right time. You could be a person that has motivation to pursue success, but what happens when you are persecuted? When you're, when you're falsely accused of a crime that you didn't commit and you're thrown in jail? We can envision of a scenario in which that happens, which innocent people are the, are the victims 
of bullying. Innocent people are the victims of, of gossip. And because of that, your joy is suddenly robbed from you, it would seem, in this life under the sun. So wisdom is meaningless. Wealth is meaningless. He says success is random. And then he also says death is inevitable and unpredictable. You see, a lot of us in our day and age, a lot of people are into health, right? You have the people that are gluten-free, dairy-free, soy-free, fish-free, everything-free, and somehow they just survive, right? The reason they do it is, I want to live a long, healthy life. I want to be strong in my old age. I want to be able to live a good life and not have a lot of problems when I'm older. Well, here's the problem. No matter how, we, how sophisticated we get in our medicine, preventing diseases, going to the doctor, taking our flu shots, how do you develop a medicine that prevents your soul from departing your body? Because you see, death comes to people often unexpected. We see that in the Orlando shooting and multiple shootings throughout our nation. It seems that people die unexpectedly, drunk driving, texting while driving. People are the victims. Maybe you're not the person even uh, texting while you're driving. Maybe you're not even the person who's drunk while you're driving, but there's another drunk driver that robs you of your life. So death is random. It's inevitable. It happens to all people. What's the point? He says, we're basically like animals, aren't we? What advantage do we really have in this life? Well, here's the, here's the point. Time puts a limiter on people's potential. It's something that each and every one of us as human beings placed in this world, we have to realize that time itself places a limiter on a human's potential. And this is why he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 4, a wise person thinks a lot about death while a fool thinks only about having a good time. Many of us don't like to think about death. But the fact that we all die forces us to think about something, which is in the short period of time, in the season that I'm placed on this earth, what is my life really worth? What am I meant to do? What is the meaning of it all? There is an atheist philosopher, his name was Martin Heidegger. I always believed to be an atheist. And he died in 1972, so he was around, around the time of World War II. He had this concept, he wrote this book called Being in Time, a number of different books. I had that book in my office, actually my office at home. And uh, it's one of the books that I kind of give to people and say, you think reading the Bible is hard? Read this book. And I've, I've made people a bet where I said, I will buy you a book if you can understand any sentence in this book whatsoever. But some really important discussions throughout the entire book. And this is one of the concepts he has. He says, humans are thrown into existence. In other words, you and I, we didn't choose to exist, did we? But we're placed here, and even though we're here because of someone else's purpose, perhaps God, he would think, or perhaps just by an accident, people already have expectations of your life. Isn't it true that your parents expect you to be successful, go to college, get married, or maybe your friends peer pressure you because all of them are dating and you feel like you have to jump into that mold as well? And so what he would say is there's a distinction between an authentic man and an inauthentic man. The inauthentic man allows other people to decide what his fate is and what his life means. But the authentic man is allowing himself to decide what am I here to do? What am I put here for on this planet? Just like if you have a hammer, right? A hammer is a tool created by someone to do a specific purpose. But here's the thing. If you're an aborigine in the Amazon or something, and then you just find a hammer on the ground, you have no idea what it's for, you pick it up, and let's say that you find a use for it, maybe a toothpick, and you're kind of getting the dirt out of your teeth. You may knock out a couple teeth in the process, and I guess you get the job done, but you're not really using that object for the purpose for which it was made. And here's the point. Pay attention. If there's a creator God who made you and I, then you and I have a purpose, and unless we find out why we were made, we're always going to misuse the life that we've been given. Death should cause us, time itself should cause us to realize there's a limiter on my potential. You know, there are people that are robbed of their life very early. And when it happens, it's always a tragedy because we feel like 
It was too soon. And if they had just lived a little bit longer, they had been able to contribute a little bit more to this earth. Well, this is where he goes in chapter three of Ecclesiastes. And he talks about this thing called time. Let's read what he says in verse one. He says, to everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to gain and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. Pay attention now, it says in verse nine. What profit has the worker from that in which he labors? I have seen that God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. Let's pray one more time. Lord, we, we believe that every single time we open up your word, there's potential, there's potential, Lord, for reality itself to change. We believe, Lord, that you are a living God that wants to speak us through this living book. These just aren't the words of a guy named King Solomon, but Lord, you breathed into this book and your breath is full of meaning. And we believe tonight that you wanna to speak to hearts. So we pray that you do that by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. So he says once again in verse one, that very peculiar phrase, he says, to everything there's a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. Everyone has a time, everyone has a season. I don't know about you, but I personally, I hate calling people on the phone. I've always had this problem. And the reason is because you call them and you have no idea what they're doing. You don't know if someone's bleeding on the other side of the you know, room that they're in. You don't know if, if they're like a life, death, life or death situation. You don't know if they're in the middle of a family dinner. You don't know if they're on the road driving, they shouldn't be talking on the phone. And so it's just awkward because I just feel like, especially if it's an important conversation, I always feel like asking, is now a good time. Timing's important, isn't it? And there are times in which it's inappropriate to do certain things. For instance, let's say that I had this great idea of, you know, I saw the kids in our neighborhood, or maybe let's say we went to the inner city and we saw a, level troubled, a lot of troubled youth, maybe some younger guys, and we all just had a heart to, to minister to these kids. And we said, we wanna do something. And so we came up with a plan and we put in thousands of dollars into this outreach. And it was to all dress up like clowns and go into the inner city and do a clown outreach. You could say, it's not a good time for that, especially in the inner city. You see, it's so important that people are able to understand and to discern the time that they're living in. It's so important. Did you actually know that it is a form of torture to block out the windows for prisoners so that they can't tell what day or what time it is? We go crazy as human beings if we do not know how to tell the time. Nations at war need to know whether it's a time of war or a time of peace. We need to know the season that we are left in. And typically when people talk about the book of Ecclesiastes, especially this chapter, the way I've heard it taught many times is, oh, there's a time to heal, a time to kill. Have you ever had a time when you wanted to kill someone? <laughs> yeah, well, maybe it's a time to heal instead. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh. Maybe there's a person crying and you wanna laugh at them. There's a time for that too. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Perhaps a person smells really bad and you need to refrain from embracing. You know, it's like, this is the way that it's taught. But the purpose is not to go through each thing and kind of just dissect what he means by each phrase. The whole point is it's supposed to be Solomon critiquing life and saying, it's all so boring and monotonous. And didn't you kind of get that in the poetry as, as I read that? 
A time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time, a time, a time, a time. It's almost like he's saying that life often, a life without God often feels repetitive and monotonous, boring, makes no sense. And you see, part of the human condition, part of our curse is that we are often left in a season and it feels like it's a definition of our life. We feel like it's our life story, don't we? Like if we were to each have a song that defined our life, you feel like when you're in a season of mourning, a season of sorrow, it doesn't feel like a season, does it? It feels like I will be sad forever. If you've ever broken up with someone, you feel like I will be lonely forever. I will never love anyone again. That's the way it feels because we are stuck here in a season. And that's why he says in verse 11, he says, God has made everything beautiful in its time and he has put eternity into their hearts except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. And this is why he says we're so preoccupied. We want to know what it all means. But only God sees the beginning to end and only he is orchestrating all of our lives together to create and compose a beautiful song. What makes a broken record so annoying? What makes a broken record so annoying is it's the same part over and over and over and over and over, repeated. And oftentimes you feel like when you're in this season, it's the same phrase, the same verse in a song repeated over, over and over and over. Rather than seeing that God is creating this beautiful masterpiece He's composing a song as the great author. And as he's doing that, each moment we have, even seasons of pain, is just a verse in the song that he's creating. You see, because God makes everything beautiful, but he does it in its time. So maybe that's something you got to tell yourself tonight when you leave. The next time that you're suffering, you, you can remind yourself that it's just a season. Everyone knows what it's like to be on a road trip and for it to be boring. It's the same tree, the same road over and over and over. It just feels like it's never ending versus a road trip with all of your best friends. And hopefully you have the privilege of doing that one day and you're laughing, you're joking, you're, you're making good conversation and time just goes by fast because you've brought life into the moment. Turn into Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 16 real quick. The Gospel of Matthew, flip to the right, if you have a Bible. Matthew chapter 16. I want you to see something. We know everyone has a time, and it's important to be able to discern the times that we're living in. And this is what Jesus said to these religious rulers called the Pharisees. It says in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 16, it says, then the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and testing him, him being Jesus, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said to them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he had left them and departed. This is what Jesus is saying. He's talking to religious rulers who are just kind of emphasizing, like, there are commands that you have to obey. These are the things that, this is what brings you closer to God. It's by the good works that you do. And as they're saying that, they were promised, the Jewish people were promised a Messiah because the fact of the matter is, none of us are good at upholding the rules. None of us are. And when you admit that and say, man, I'm a sinner. I do bad things. And not just a little bit, like a lot. I'm really good at sinning. I'm really good at hurting other people. When we realize that, we, we recognize we need a savior to cover our sin. And that's what Jesus came to do, the Messiah, the savior of the world. But then the Jewish people trying to confirm whether or not Jesus was God, whether Jesus was a savior that was promised and prophesied about, they said, well, we want you to show us a magic trick. Prove, prove to us that you're from God. And Jesus is saying, like, don't you read the Bible? Haven't you read the prophecies? You guys are really good at predicting weather. 
Like you look at the sky and you say it's going to be foul weather, fair weather based on the signs in the sky. How do you not look at what's right in front of you? How can you not tell if you've really been devoted to this? How can you miss what's right in front of you? And what I would say to all of us here tonight is it is possible that we can be good at a lot of things and yet miss what is right in front of you. Maybe you're that type of person that said things like, I've tried praying to God and he didn't answer me. And because of that, I don't, I don't want to believe in him anymore. Or I prayed to God and he didn't answer the way that I, I said, Lord, if you're God and if you're real, then I want you to do this or to do that. And he didn't give you the answer that you expected. And because of that, you just abandoned faith. Well, here's the problem with that. Prayer is not a means of verifying God's existence. Prayer is an exercise in faith. In other words, when we pray, the results are not up to us, right? I mean, that would be kind of, that'd be kind of weird to say, okay, God, uh, I will believe in you, but you got to do everything that I want you to do. Otherwise, I refuse to believe in you. Like, God is not your genie. He does not have to listen to you. Why does he have to do these magic tricks and do these things to convince you? Instead, you look at nature, you look at creation, like if you've ever had a moment where you're like, I don't know if God is real, go outside, look at the sky, and you'll be like, wow, I need to spend more time outside because those stars, it doesn't look like it appeared just out of nowhere. Or at the very least, even if you want to go this, you know, the route of many people that are materialistic or, you know, people that are scientists, but they refuse to believe that there's a creator of the universe, you can at least say this problem is complex and it looks like it's designed like many atheists have said. So here's the thing, knowing that it's not a means to verify God's, God's existence, what we can do is we can rationalize backwards and say, okay, is there good evidence to believe that God exists? If that's true, then I can say the Bible is true. And if the Bible is true, then what it says in God's word is true. And then I can know that when I pray, if God does not listen to me and give me the answer that I expect, I can believe that he has sufficient reasons. So prayer becomes an exercise in faith, much like when God calls you to give $5 to a homeless shelter, or he calls you, calls you to do something that's benevolent to somebody else. It's an exercise in faith because you, you, you may not even see a return on that. But by you doing that, you, you believe that there's a God that will reward you in this life and the one to come. So what Jesus is saying is, we need to be able to, unlike the Pharisees, tell what time it is. Know the time. Romans chapter 13, verse 11 says this. Do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Everyone look up here. This is really important. We need to learn how to tell the time more than feeling the time. We need to learn how to tell the time more than feel it. How many of us, we still to this day have our parents waking up, I don't say me, you probably, your parents still wake you up in the morning when you're trying to get ready for school? This really doesn't happen. I'm not being defensive. But for you guys, you may have a parent wake you up. And what happens? Maybe they, they try knocking on the door once or twice or three times, and they're telling you, it's time to get up but you don't feel like getting up. It doesn't matter. It's, if you don't get up, you're going to be late to school. And many of us, if we are honest with ourselves, we don't think about God on a daily basis. Many of us, our hearts are prone to think about ourselves, thinking about our careers, thinking about things that make us personally happy in the moment, and not thinking about what will it amount to for all of eternity. You see, there is a story in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 27, there are two brothers named Esau and Jacob. One, his name meant Harry, that's what Esau means, and the other, Jacob, it meant hill catcher or trickster. So these two twins are born, kind of a weird situation, like one grabs his heel and gets out first or whatever. And as these two brothers are growing, they have a rivalry. And what happens is, there was this blessing that the father would bestow against a uh, um, he would bestow upon the firstborn child. 
And so since Esau was technically the firstborn, he was supposed to get the blessing. But here's the problem. Jacob conspired to steal the blessing from Esau. So their father Isaac had really, really bad eyesight. And at this point, since he was really, really old, had really bad eyesight, he said to Esau, man, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you that blessing I told you about ever since you were little, okay? But here's the thing. I want you to cook me a good bowl of stew. Like most of us know what that's like, right? You want to do something, but before you do it, you got to eat something. You're hungry. So that's kind of where he was. I want you to go out hunting and bring me my favorite meal. And so Esau's like, I'm game because I'm the man and I'm really hairy. So he goes out and then Jacob stays behind and him and his mom conspire to steal the blessing. And so Jacob's like, well, how, how will I be able to steal this blessing? He's going to know it's not me, first of all. Even if he can't see me, I'm not hairy. And so his mom's like, oh, don't worry, man. This is what we're going to do, man. That's how moms speak to their children. <laughs> don't worry. This is what we're going to do. I'm going to take some goat skin and wrap it on your hand and on your neck. And he's going to be tricked. And for whatever reason, this works. So in my imagination, I'm wondering how exactly Harry was Esau that they had to put goat skin on him and that's what tricked his dad. So this is what happens. He puts goat skin on, really hairy dude, and then goes in and then talks to his dad. And then he's like, are you, are you really Esau? You're not Jacob? So yeah, I'm, I'm definitely Esau. He's like, how did you get the stew so quick? Didn't you just leave? And he said, the Lord brought it to me. And I'm like, oh man, messed up. And then he blesses him, says my favorite Bible verse in the entire Bible. He says, ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. It's really weird. Genesis 27, 27. Gives him the blessing and he walks away. Esau comes back and says, here I am. I brought your favorite stew. And then I was just like, what? Like, who, didn't, who was that guy I just blessed then? And then he realized that he had missed the blessing. He said, bless me too, my father. And he says, I have no blessings. I, I gave it to the other guy. I'm sorry. Here's the lesson. The problem wasn't that Esau was less talented. The problem wasn't that Esau was less good looking, less smart. The problem was Esau was too late. And many of us, if we are not able to discern the time that we're living in, it's possible that we could be too late. This is why in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, it says, as God's partners, we beg you not to accept this marvelous gift of God's kindness and then ignore it. For God says, at just the right time I heard you, on the day of salvation, I helped you. Indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. Maybe you're one of those people that says, I will believe in Jesus like later on when I'm an adult, when I'm old enough, when I, when I have to be responsible. Maybe you're the person that says, well, I believe in Jesus, but I'll get serious about God when I'm in college or when I have a job or when I have a family. Here's the thing. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. As I said before, death comes unexpected. It's unpredictable and it happens to all. And so we have to ask the question, is it possible that I am not guaranteed tomorrow and I'm always pushing it off and I never actually make that decision to make Jesus the Lord of my life? There was a Canadian man who applied for the lottery. He bought two lottery tickets. And the thing is, he won $27 million. However, the ticket was bought at nine o'clock and at 8.59, it was rendered void. The whole thing was void because he had bought it seven seconds late. Seven seconds. And so he actually sued the Canadian government and the lottery and whatever they do. He sued them saying, like, this is unfair. And they actually ruled it against him. He spent $100,000 of his own money trying to sue the government so he could get $27 million. And they said, sorry, by the timestamp on your ticket, you were seven seconds too late. My challenge to you is don't let it be too late for you that you look back at your life and you regret the decisions that you made because you were not able to discern that God was speaking to your heart. Maybe even as I'm speaking to you this evening or you're watching online, you're saying, you know what? I think what you're saying, I know it's true, but I'm not ready to make that decision yet. Well, what's holding you back? That's what I would ask. What questions do you have? Because 
what I would what I would suggest to you and what I would say to you is that if you dig deep into the Bible, this is a book that's willing to give you answers. In fact, there was a disciple that doubted that Jesus resurrected from the dead, doubting Thomas. And many people said, oh, I can't believe that this guy Thomas doubted. Well, Jesus doesn't rebuke Thomas. In fact, he showed himself to him and said, if you doubt, you can put your hands in my sides. You can feel the nail marks. What he did is, in Thomas's doubt, Jesus drew near to him and revealed himself to Thomas. And so if you have doubts, that's okay because this book is allowing you to ask those questions and I'd be happy to answer any of those questions if you have them. There was another time in which Jesus was speaking to his brothers that didn't believe in him. Imagine that, that you are the God of the universe and you've come into the world to save the universe, to save the world, and your own family doesn't believe in you. Some of them did down the line. James, we know, Jude. Um, but as Jesus was talking to his brothers at one point, his brother said to him mockingly, says, listen, if you really believe that you're God, what you need to do is you need to go to the, the Feast of Tabernacles because that's where the party is. That's where all the people will be. And then you can do your tricks and you can do the miracles and stuff and everyone will believe in you. And so they're saying, why are you, why are you waiting? Now's the time to go. This is what Jesus says to them. He says this in John chapter seven, verse six. My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. This is what he's saying in essence, because that phrase can be a little confusing. He's saying because he subscribes to God's timeline, to the timeline of the Father, he was willing to wait until the Father said it was time to go. But a person that does not synchronize themselves to God's calendar, each moment is equally meaningless. Because it's all an accident, isn't it? It's all without purpose. And at any point in time, your life could be taken from you and all of your plans could be ruined. Whereas we believe that God ordains each moment in our lives. He's working all things together for good, the Bible says. So that each moment you have in your life can be redeemed. And you will not leave this planet one moment sooner than the day that he has appointed. This is what commentator D.A. Carson says about this passage. He says, it is almost as if they are being excluded from divine sovereignty. Not that God suspended his providential reign in their case, but that what they did was utterly without significance as far as God is concerned. If you have no God to consult, if you don't have a real and living God that you can come to with your questions and ask him the hard questions of life of what, what was I created to do, then what really are we going to do with our lives and how do we know we are going in the right direction? Well, one of the questions that you always get is, well, why not now? Why do I have to wait? Why can't I just take advantage of all the things that are showing them, uh, making themselves available to me in this moment? And the world's time frame is always right now, always ready. It's always time to do whatever it is that you want to do in the moment, do whatever feels good. And this is kind of like the way that we live, right? In our day and age, we have everything on demand. We have movies on demand. We can watch TV shows, full seasons, and stay up till like three in the morning watching episodes whenever we want, whenever we feel like. When a friend, uh, you text a friend and they have the read receipt, and it says the text was read, you give them about five seconds and then you start freaking out. What in the world are you doing? Why aren't you answering my text message? Why are you ignoring me? All of us want the answers right now. And because of that, many people give into sin. And they'll say, why wait to have sex with someone? I mean, that, that to the world, the fact that you might wait for anything is preposterous. If you can do it now, why would you wait? You may not get this opportunity ever again. It's the same thing with drinking. Like, why, why do you have to wait until you're 21? Why don't you just do it now? If everyone else is doing it, then maybe you should do it too. Why wait till you get older to start dating this person? I mean, like, you may never know. This might be the last person that'll be attracted to you for the rest of your life. So you might as well date them even if you're not convinced that they're the right person. Well, here's the thing. We believe that there is value in waiting. 
because the Bible says that he will withhold no good thing from those that walk uprightly. That you trust in the Lord and lean not on your own understanding, acknowledge him in all your ways and he will direct your paths. That's how Christians live their lives. Because here's the thing, people say, well, I wanna live for the moment. I wanna do whatever feels good in the moment. But we've learned that living for the moment really just means that you believe that there's no particular moment worth living for. Because it's all equally meaningless. It's all equally valuable to you. But Christians don't believe that. We believe there are some things in life worth waiting for. Just like an athlete, right? An athlete will deprive themselves of certain pleasures temporarily so they can inherit a greater treasure. So I love donuts, I love them so much. But if donuts are gonna cost me the Olympics, forget the donuts, I wanna go for the gold. And that's what runners do, that's what trained athletes do of all trades. They say, some things are worth not indulging in so I can indulge in a greater treasure. Well, maybe you're gonna ask this question. Well, in all this talk about time, and all this talk about seasons, why are there hard seasons? Why are there moments of suffering? Why is it that people go through hard times? Or how could a good God allow people to suffer? That's a very important question. And here's the thing, maybe that's the reason why people don't actually become a Christian or give their lives, lives to God because they feel like they can't trust God because of the hurt that has been uh, allowed into their life. Well, we would say, first of all, it was never God's intention that any of us would go through suffering and sin. But God gave us a good thing called free will. And free will is the ability to choose otherwise, which means you can choose to do even bad things. Well, each time you do a bad thing, that causes a little bit of suffering. So now the question becomes, how much suffering does God have to get rid of in order for us to be satisfied? Because maybe you're saying, well, there seems to be at least some suffering that's unjustified. So let's eliminate all the worst suffering in the world. But then you get into an infinite regress, don't you? Because how do you know that hasn't already happened? What if there's a world in which there's multiple Hitlers, like a, a possible world, not like the actual world, there's a possible world in which there's multiple Hitlers that do multiple times more damage in our world, and God prevented that from happening, right? So then the next level of evil, Hitler himself, would be the maximum evil that God would have to get rid of. And so you can make, a, you can make an infinite regress all the way down to saying God has to eliminate all suffering. It's not just the worst suffering, but God has to eliminate all suffering. But here's the problem with that. If God has to eliminate all suffering, he has to put an end to you and me because we perpetrate some suffering, don't we? All of us have, have caused some other people to suffer, whether through gossip, whether through physically actually hurting someone, whether doing things that are harmful to somebody else, and maybe even unintentionally you've done something that you regret. All of us are perpetrators of suffering. So this is what God did. At some point, he will judge all people that cause suffering. Because if he didn't, he would not be a righteous judge. Just like when we see people in the news that take advantage of other people. When we see that there are people that are let go after only a couple months after raping a person, all of us look at that and we know that that is unjust. There's something deep inside of us that cries out for justice. And if that's true, God, who is the author of all justice, who gave us our idea of justice, himself does not want any person to suffer in that way. And so he will judge each person that causes sin. But the question is, why doesn't he do it right now? It's because he wants people to repent. Repent means to change your mind, to go the opposite direction, to run away from sin, selfishness, doing whatever feels good in the moment, and to say, I'm willing to wait for God and his instruction and follow his ways that bring forth healing and culture, creativity, things that bring life. The very first thing that God did with human beings is he breathed into them after he gave them form. And so that our breath doesn't have to be vanity, our breath can be the breath of life that God gives to us. And we can be breathing into this world life 
as made into the image of God. That was why we were created. So in the meantime, here's the, here's the best news of all of that. That in the middle of all the suffering that's happening in our world, knowing that God is patient and isn't judging the world yet because he wants people to repent, in the meantime, he didn't just sit idly by and watch people suffer. He decided to step down from his throne, though he never had to, and become one of us and died on a cross, partaking in the suffering himself so that you and I could go to heaven and be forgiven of all our sins. And that is the beauty of the gospel. That he's not a distant God, but he is a God that is near and dear to all of us because he himself suffered as we suffer and beyond our suffering because he suffered as an innocent man for sins he did not commit. So knowing that, that this is the reason why God allows suffering. We can know in the meantime that we don't have to stay in a season of suffering because in the meantime, God will turn our mourning into joy. Here's the thing. Maybe you didn't realize this, but let me ask you this question. What was the first miracle that Jesus did while he was on the earth? Does anyone know? Anybody? You can call it out if you want. Anybody? The first miracle Jesus did, he turned the water into wine. See, wine was a picture of blessing and celebration and God's favor upon the people. And as wine was a picture of joy, Jesus went to this wedding and they ran out of wine. And that was something in those days, like if you were throwing a party, you're throwing this wedding and you ran out of wine, you could actually be sued. So because of that, Mary comes up to Jesus and says, what are we going to do about this? And Jesus turns the water that they have into wine. You know, that's a story we don't have to get into uh, tonight. We don't have enough time. But the point being is many of us look at our concerns, the little things, and we say, well, God probably doesn't want to hear that prayer. God probably doesn't care about that. But here's the thing. God cares about each and everything that you're concerned about. And he was willing to signify in the very first miracle that he did that he came to change the world and starting it by bringing life to this planet once again. In Psalm chapter 81, verse 10, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Here's the thing. Going back to discerning the signs of the times, perhaps we're in a season of mourning, but we're supposed to be in a season of joy. And the only thing that has to change is not our situation, it's just how we perceive the situation. When we set our eyes upon God, who makes everything beautiful in its time, we can, by faith, say, even though I'm suffering now, I know that God is working all things together for good so that you don't have to stay anxious, stay worried. You never have to stay in a, in a state of depression. You can choose by God's power and his healing to get out of it, knowing that he is making everything beautiful in its time. You know, there's a story also in the Bible of Lazarus who died. He was a friend of Jesus. And Jesus actually lingered a couple days longer. And then people said, what took you so long? And the reason why Jesus lingered is because after there's a superstition in the day that if you, if you were dead for three days, then you were really dead. There's no possibility of you coming back. Jesus comes in, raises Lazarus from the dead, and proves that his timing is always right. And maybe you feel like God has not shown up in the way that you want him to that you've prayed, you've cried out, and you've not heard him, well, I would say for you to hold on a little bit longer because God is always on time. In, in Galatians chapter four, it says, when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And this is where it starts with repentance. It starts with each and every one of us realizing that we can't do it on our own but also being willing to turn from our wicked ways, to say there are things I do selfishly. I desire to be appreciated. I desire for people to look at me and think I am the best thing that ever happened to this universe. And even if you're that person that's, that has a self-loathing, there's always a self-consciousness that's just burdensome to us. But imagine a world in which you didn't have to think about yourself, where you knew that the most important person in the universe was God and you could worship him and whatever people think about you, it doesn't really matter because you know what God thinks about you. 
and you know that he loves you so much. But that's why Jesus said, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. You see, following Jesus means a self-denial, being able to put your selfish ways aside. Now, maybe you're thinking right now, well, I, I, I feel like what you're saying is true. I have an idea of what you're saying, and it feels right, but how, do you, how can you be convinced? How can you be sure that what you're believing is true? I mean, there's over 2,000 religions out there. How do you know that yours is the right one? What if there are people that equally are sincere and they have the same kind of beliefs and they're convinced that their God is the right God? Well, I would say this. Let's imagine that you had a set of keys, over 2,000 keys, and you're trying to get inside your house and only one key out of the 2,000 was able to open your door and go into your house. And let's say almost by sheer luck, you just happen to find the right key and you stick it in the door. All the keys are different. None of the teeth are the same. You stick it in the door, you turn it and it opens the door. Once the door is open, do you have to go back to the set of keys and make sure that you have the right key? No, because the door is open. And in the same way, if you know that God is speaking to your heart right now, whether you're online, whether you're here right now physically, the thing you need to know is, if God is speaking to your heart, why wait? Act on what you know. Because you'll never come to your point where you, I mean, like, I'm pretty certain of what I believe, right? But what we're looking for is not 100% certainty. The question is, is it more likely to be true than not? Are you convinced? Because you can doubt anything if you want to. But if you are, if you are in a state of doubt and you don't know if this is true, by you asking questions, we believe that God reveals himself to those people. The Bible says, if you seek me and you, find, uh, you seek me with all of your heart, you will find me. And that's, that's what our God desires for all of us to do is to seek him. I'm gonna close with this. The pursuit of God is not rules and religion. The pursuit of God is always supposed to be about a relationship. And from Genesis to Revelation, the book of Genesis starts with marriage, Adam and Eve, and it ends with marriage and Revelation, Jesus and the church. In our relationship with God, many people believe like you do good things, do right things, because the Bible tells you to do good things. The reason why we follow God and obey his commands is because we love God, because we have a loving relationship with God. Just like your relationship with your parents should be one of love and you obey them because you want to please them and you don't sin against them because you don't want to disappoint them. It's the same thing with your relationship with your friends. It's not like you try to figure out like what the rules are and what you can get away with just so that you can be on their good side. It's because you care about them that you don't want to gossip about them or do other harmful things to them. And so the Bible starts with and ends with marriage and we are as Christians supposed to be living in this life in light of the day, in anticipation of the day that we are united with our God, who himself is love. But in the meantime, we do have these burdens on our back. And there's a story, a fictional story called Pilgrim's Progress. And in this story, there's a man, Christian, who carries this giant burden. And he's, he basically asks, when will I be freed of this burden that I carry? And so him talking to a friend named Mr. Goodwill, Mr. Goodwill says, dear Christian, the place of beginnings is not the place of deliverance. In other words, the place where you are now is not the place that you will be when it's all wiped away. You must be content to bear it until, until you come to a sacred hill where it will fall from your back of its own accord. And Pilgrim, uh, Christian asks, when will that be? And Mr. Goodwill responds by saying the famous line, sooner than you think, and longer than you wish. Sooner than you think, and longer than you wish. Everyone knows, as we speak in the, in the beginning, the passage of time is funny. There are some things like this Bible study that can feel really long or really short, depending on whether or not you enjoy what's happening. Our lives should be an enjoyable ride. The Bible says that uh, Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and that more abundantly. He wants your joy to be full. And 
Jacob, the guy I described before, in Genesis chapter 29, verse 20, it talks about the passage of time for him as he fell in, fell in love with a girl named Rachel. And it says this, Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. See, there's a situation where he was forced to work for her in order to be able to marry her by her uncle Laban. It says, well, you got to work for me seven years. And so he worked seven years, and at the end, he's like, oh, I was just kidding, because you get to marry somebody else. And then if you really want Rachel, you got to work another seven years. But it says to him, I know it's a really strange story, but the point is, Jacob said, it doesn't really matter to me, because he was in love. And when you're in love, it doesn't really matter what's happening in between, in the middle. I said to uh, Pastor Brian Higgins, junior high pastor, I said, um, now that you've been married, your engagement period, how did that feel? There was this weird tension, right, where it just went by really fast, but at the same time, you couldn't wait until you got married. And everything in between, it's almost like he didn't care, right? Well, here's the thing. God loves you so much, and the only reason why he has not returned is because he's not willing for any single person to perish. So if there's people out there in the world that are lost, suffering, suicidal, cutting, in depression, and we have the gospel, we have the good news of Jesus, we can bring it to them. That is the heart of God. The only reason why you're still here is because there's still another sinner yet to be saved. And we get to be a part of that healing and renewal process. And so if you don't wanna be part of it, here's the thing, you're missing out on the most exciting relationship you can engage in in this universe. As we are directing people's eyes towards the person that created them and made them, and they can discover why they are here on this planet. Well, there's a verse in 2 Peter that describes that, that God is not willing that any should perish, but all would come to repentance. You know what the verse before that is? It says this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 through 9. It says this, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is looking forward to that day, and I hope you are too. Let's pray.